Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Jeff Morris Jr., Director of Product Revenue at Tinder and Investor with Chapter One. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Super excited to be here. I'm a uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, so uh, this this will be a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, for, for those who are a bit new to you and for those who know you, Jeff, how, how would you describe uh, two things? How would you describe your mission? What, what inspires you and what you hope to hope to do and create in the next decades uh, and decades to come? And then how would you describe your your expertise? What expertise have you built up in the last decade plus to, that will help get you to achieve your mission? Sure. Great question. So I think I thought about this a lot recently and kind of looking for themes in my career. And my mission right now is is building products that take people from online to offline and really uh, facilitating in-person interactions has been a big theme theme in my career. Um, A lot of marketplaces, very human products that take people away from their phones. And, you know, going back to kind of the starting point of my career was was at a marketplace called Zarly. And and the mission of that was to help people make money. And so another theme that I'm just interested in is is how you help people make money. And um, in that case, it was for handymen, plumbers, uh, just kind of like everyday people. And so that's, that's a big theme. Just, just trying to make the world a little bit more fair through, through software, I think is, is a theme I, I try and think about. And then expertise has really been focused on, on products. So going back to early parts of my career was on growth teams. Um, that kind of led me to become more interested in product because I was building a lot of landing pages and just kind of like onboarding flows and, all the way to now leading, leading revenue on Tinder, now focus a lot on monetization. So thinking of subscriptions and kind of the future of, of monetization has been a big theme and, and something I think a lot about. So uh, I want to get to to, to cons- uh, uh, consumer, but first let me, let me zoom out. How convinced are you uh, that a world um, with online to offline, like how crucial is that to you? Like, do you, you know, another thing you could have said or someone else could say is, hey, I want to make online so much better that it mimics, uh, you know, it's as good as offline for people who, who can't have that offline, you know, connection or with people who are like them. And so they want to, you know, create VR, AR experiences that, that mimic offline experience. But uh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, to me, the offline component um, won't be replaced by technology. And I've thought a lot about this. Um, I've been diving into mental health a lot recently as, as kind of a, uh, a weekend project. And, you know, there's so many models of teletherapy that try and replace the in-person experience. And then just reflecting on what's worked for me in therapy, um, it, it all happens, at least as a, as a starting point, with some, some human connection where you're sitting in a room with, with another person. Um, and that's where you really build the trust. And so, and, and then obviously Tinder is, is a great example of, of what online and offline products look like. Um, I've seen a lot of pitches for, you know, VR dating, AR dating, and, and really, you know, the formats might change, but 
at the end of the day, you still want to meet someone in, in real life. And I, I truly believe that. And in, I 100% agree. And the question for me is, in 15 years, will that be the same? Or, or like, is that 100% true today because technology is just not good enough? Or because there will always be something about face-to-face? And, and you know, you think a lot about remote work, too. So it's, it's not just dating. And some people say in the remote work, we'll just sacrifice connection for sort of utility in some places. But, but I wonder if that will be true when the technology just gets better. Yeah, I think it, it really depends on the category. So if you're thinking about gaming as an example, um, maybe you don't need to meet online or offline, I should say. Um, maybe the online relationship is strong enough. For the workplace, and I know the guys at Zapier and um, Wade, they've, they've kind of mastered this uh, cadence of meeting in person where um, they facilitate quarterly in-person meetings where the whole team is is together. And so I do believe in, in the future of work in a more distributed workforce, but um, there has to be some in-person component, especially at the early stages where you're, you're in like pure innovation mode. I just don't really believe that can be replaced. Um, and I, I'm sure there'll be many examples that prove me wrong, but kind of the majority of companies I think will still require that in-person interaction where serendipity happens. And um, so much of the magic of building products for me has been, at unexpected times where you're just sitting next to somebody and you come up with some crazy idea. And I find, I find kind of, and I've, I've looked a lot at, at Tandem's been a, a big YC company at this match. And I think there's things that are trying to, to mirror the, the kind of in-person experience, but it just doesn't quite add up to, to what it's like to sit next to someone and be in the trenches. Yeah. And let's, um, let's talk about consumer. You, you've obviously, you know, uh, been working at, at Tinder for quite some time, which is one of these sort of, you know, mega, uh, consumer companies in the last decade, you know, along with, with Snap and, 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 and just a couple others, as in there, there haven't been that many. And Tinder, you know, uh, obviously was revolution, not just on, on dating, but also in, in bring local, local, making local work. Why don't you just give a quick consumer sur- a survey of where we are right now in consumer and how you're approaching it as an investor? Yeah, um, I read a great quote, Henry McNamara, he's at Great Oaks, um, great investor, and he said, the future of consumers is dogs, babies, and weed, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. <laughs> but um, I, and, and I think I have a dog, and uh, I don't have babies yet, but um, he was just kind of getting at the fact that like things are changing, and what's, what's consumer might not look like social networks. And so um, I think when people hear the word consumer, they assume it's messaging, or the next snap, or the next Tinder, but the categories have just changed a lot. So, um, you know, I, I tend to, as an investor, like live by the seven deadly sins thesis, which Sequoia has talked a lot about. And, you know, a lot of what I spend myself asking is, is like, are those seven deadly sins malleable or are they permanent? How malleable is human nature? Um, and so I think, I think some of those things are changing. And, um, another person I, I followed, Kalyan, he said, um, he believes that wellness is the future of, of uh, the seven deadly sins and that wellness is kind of today's luxury status symbol, which I believe in kind of coastal areas might be true. Um, and when you look at the wellness economy, it's like a $4.2 trillion market. And and so I think I think there's just new consumer categories, but it might not look like Snap. I know a lot of investors who have actually left venture, who were consumer investors who, who left because like the new categories just don't appeal to them. And so, you know, I, I think things are, are just changing a lot and I don't, I don't tend to invest in, in like peer consumer social apps, but I do invest in consumer businesses that have really strong monetization models. And that's kind of been the focus for me. 
You know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan, nothing against them, but I'm not a huge fan of dogs, babies, or weed. So I will have to, uh, become an, <laughs> be, become an enterprise investor. T- talk more about, you know, if, if we're looking out a decade, a decade from now and we're back on this podcast, what are a couple billion dollar companies that will have emerged from, from consumer or, or wellness? Like, what will they look like? Yeah, I think a lot about um, biometrics and the Apple Watch. I think you you probably saw that the Apple Watch is now outselling the iPads. And so every yeah. WWDC, there's a new uh, superpower that the Apple Watch can can help solve. And so I've, I've been digging a lot into what that looks like. Um, there's some really cool websites where you can actually look at all the patents that Apple is filing. And one of them happens to be um, putting biometric sensors on your airpods and so and then you look at the things that that having airpods in your ears all day can do in terms of wellness you know there's been a lot of academic uh studies where you can detect things like ptsd or stress um and so i'm really interested in in kind of some consumer applications that tie this all together and help help personalize it and then help create more actionable insights um and i'm really interested in kind of this always on maintenance of, of, of your life and your well-being. I think that will be an interesting future. So I'm actually surprised there aren't more developers building for the Apple Watch. And so like I actually have never met a developer who's building on the Apple Watch platform. I think it's just because, you know, the, the adoption curves aren't quite there where it makes sense to, to create a business. But um, I would be especially interested in, in funding Apple Watch-focused uh, companies, and I think that will come soon. And, and w- 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 uh, say more about what a company could look like on top of the Apple Watch. I mean, I think I think about kind of what what the Apple Watch knows about me in terms of what I do with my life, and so it knows uh, things like my sleep patterns. It knows if I worked out that day, um, and through collecting this data and, and uh, kind of observing me over a long period of time, it could probably help me live my life a, a little bit better. And so I've been, I've actually been trying like everywhere, but I have a, a whoop, um, on my wrist right now and I have an Apple watch on the other wrist. So I'm just like comparing different and I'm eager to try kind of the aura ring, but you know, I think it's, it's things that tie together the moments of your life and help you make sense of, of what's happening in terms of dressing you out or, um, or causing you to kind of feel upset or depressed. And it's helping you identify those patterns and proactively, um, address them. How, how soon until we get to her? Because I, I her like scenario. Cause I, I feel like it's close. <laughs> I don't think we're that far off. I mean, the basis of her was just a voice that was talking into somebody's ears, and so um, you know, if you look at AirPod adoption and just like social norms, it's very it's very common to see people just living their days with with their AirPods in their ears. I was at uh, a trendy restaurant in West Hollywood last week. I saw. Uh, a guy on a date with with a girl, and he had an AirPod in his right ear. I'm not sure why, but it was just like to me that was like the ultimate like light bulb moment where I was like, <laughs> these are trendy enough where you can wear you can wear AirPods at dinner now. But I, I do think there's there's been some interesting attempts at this, and you know, TTYL is is one of the early kind of AirPod social networks that's that's been released. I know there's some others kind of in the works, but we'll see. I don't think we're that far off from that being a reality. And, and so let's say TTYL or something like it takes off. I mean, I think we're getting, and we, I think we went back and forth on this on Twitter a while ago, but I, I think we're getting closer to a world where everything becomes recorded. Um, yeah. Just because it gets so much easier. 
And I wonder if that has to be paired with a world in which we sort of reconsider identity, certainly online identity, to more pseudonymous or or hopefully that's like a decentralized company that doesn't own all of our, you know, recordings or I, I don't, how do you, th- how do you think about that world? Yeah, I thought about this a lot and um, I'm a big fan of otter.ai and I use otter, I've used in the workplace. There's something that interesting, interesting that happens when you start recording conversations in the workplace, people behave a little bit differently. And sometimes I think that's a good thing. And other times uh, it's not so good. But I thought a lot about like, like what does the ultimate transparent workplace look like and so i've talked to a lot of people about this and i think in a in a like full transparency workplace everybody would have access to everybody else's emails you know you could record every meeting literally nothing would be a secret and so like it's interesting to think about what that might do to a company and if that's positive or negative obviously like that's the extreme version maybe there's different different versions of that where you have different kind of like access information but I do think a lot about kind of an always on recorded workplace. Um, you know, I think, I think the big thing is that I've seen is, is consent is a really big piece of that where, um, you know, if, if somebody walks in a meeting and records somebody else, the other person wants to know that, that they're being recorded. And so we haven't quite gone to the, the point where like Otter is just always on, on, on Zoom calls. I could get to that point. And I think all in all, it's positive for, for the world. Um, uh, it comes with with uh, some things to be be cautious of. Yeah, well, yeah. In my opinion, I think a lot of things. Well, I, I think here's what will happen in th- sort of the most extreme case, and basically, sort of like a min- Minority Report. Have you seen Minority Report movie? The movie. Oh yeah, I love I love it. <laughs> yeah, where they can basically predict you know people's actions uh, or crimes ahead of time. Um, but I, I think a lot of bad actors will be sort of prevented or or, or taken out when they do occur um, because lots of things will be recorded. At the same time, also it just you know the dystopia is a world where everything is recorded, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you, know, fr- you don't have freedom to express unless it's tied with a world where you have sort of freedom of identity and you could shift between a bunch of different identities or you know it somehow re- retain accountability for. And th- this is where crypto gets exciting because, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, it's fun to think about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting. Um, it's something I'm following a lot as both an investor and just like a curious you know, observer of the world. I think, I think we'll have more companies will lean into this always on environment, especially with distributed teams. The the hard part is, is just consuming all the information. So, you know, I've recorded meetings, uh, team meetings, and very rarely do you kind of go back and look at that information. The best form of it is, is summaries where um, speakers are identified and key points in the meetings are, are called out, but you know, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the we're, you, we in some ways we have a deluge of information, and in other ways, you know, there's certain there's obviously opportunities to to curate that, and in other ways, we're not connecting it as as much as like we're having this conversation right now. I bet you know our mutual friends are having a similar conversation and could add on to this conversation. And if we somehow knew that, then I don't know, some something interesting could happen. Result in, in similarly like on the internet, we all read the same things and annotate things and. And comment on things, and it just seems sort of siloed, or, or we're not building upon each other's work, uh, both audio and written, in ways that we probably can do a much better job of, of, of curating, synthesizing. If you sort of think about like knowledge as this human collective project, we need mm-hmm. a lot more, you know, better collaboration tools. Yeah, I agree. I, I saw a startup recently where it's basically 
chat rooms on every website you consume. And so like, it, it is kind of interesting. I remember Google Reader was a product that was shut down, but you know, like maybe 10 years ago, I had a group of five of us who would comment on the same news articles on a very frequent basis. And um, like, I don't know why when I go to Reddit, I can't easily identify my friends in kind of a live chat environment. And similar, like, like it would be cool to have more threaded um, podcasts. I think that'd be a really interesting experiment. Let's segue into, into dating a bit. So if, if we're here again, five years from now, 10 years back on this podcast, how has the world of dating as it relates to, you know, products like Tinder, or if there are any upstarts uh, evolved? Yeah, I think, I think a big, a big piece will just be the globalization will be even more pronounced. And I think Tinder is, is a massive mainstream product in most of the world, but in many areas, it's, it's still emerging. Um, a lot of the Asian markets, India, and kind of the social norms in those countries um, are still catching up. So I think just on a, a societal level, we'll see more acceptance and, and it will just be more of a, a common thing. Um, you know, I think the, the stats, I think 35% of, of marriages happen online at this point. It's some crazy number like that. And that number will just keep, keep going up. But in terms of, of dating, I think too, like the things that interest me a lot in the category are just how, how you make communities smaller. And so we have these big, massive platforms. I think there's a lot of opportunity to personalize them a little bit better. And so I think about that a lot, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the, the biggest change will just be the phenomenon will go more global and we'll see the countries that, that are still kind of holding on to their, their current norms will be, will be disrupted too. Let's say you left Tinder tomorrow. So it wasn't, you know, out of competitive interest. Would you ever invest in another dating startup in the next few years or just does Tinder have it on lock? They've tried everything. There's no one who's got this video approach or this AR approach or this new technology approach can uh yeah really take a stab um you know I, I hate saying that that any company has anything unlocked because it, it's like a little bit uh presumptuous and, and i think any company can be disrupted at any time um but like if you look at the amount of, of venture money going into the category i think in q4 2017 and that's the last data i have there was about six million dollars of venture capital money that went into dating startups as a category and so there's just not a lot of venture activity around the category and it, it is it is kind of like the ultimate cold start problem where um i get dating pitches all the time um probably not weekly but maybe bi-weekly and you know, I, I i don't invest in them currently because of the reasons you stated it wouldn't be uh <laughs> it just won't it wouldn't work with my tinder situation but i, I probably would would like i, I would definitely some of the pitches but it would be a very tough category for me to invest in just because I've seen how, how hard it is to scale these businesses. And I don't know, I've seen so many pitches at this point and it, it's just a hard thing for me to get really uh, comfortable with. But I do think the business models are great. We've, we've seen across the board subscription models are, are becoming uh, just the norm and, and consumer and dating's kind of pioneered that. So um, if you can, if you can come up with some unique, perspective or audience and, and you can have some kind of some audience that, that you can quickly capture, then, then maybe, um, I would consider it. Yeah. But before going back to dating for a second, could, could, you know, the anonymous or pseudonymous social networks, Yik Yak, Secret, uh, they, they were local too. They, they didn't work. Could subscription have saved them or, or do you think they will, they will work in the future? How, how do you think about anonymous, pseudonymous and local? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm really not a big fan of anonymous social networks and 
um, a lot of it comes down to just like the behavior that that ultimately happens on, on most of them. Um, and I've looked at investing in, in a bunch, and you know, I have blind on my phone currently, and I just I just don't like. I love identity. I think the the future of of social is more based around trust, and I think it's really hard to have trust without identity. So, but you know, like Yik Yak and and all those networks. I don't know if the subscription would have saved them because the communities just become so toxic at, at a certain point. I do think if you layer on subscriptions on something like Path, maybe you have a nice business. I don't know if it's a, a venture scale business, but I think you could build a, a very profitable company. Yeah. Okay. Double clicking in in dating. I'm curious if there will be something like maybe maybe you say Tinder is this, but something like a Pandora for dating, where it's almost like, hey, you like Jeff, you're most likely to like Ryan, or you're likely to like Eric. Yeah. Uh, or you know, I know I know he doesn't even live in L.A. He lives in San Francisco, but trust me, <laughs> or you know, you'll really like it. Like, what do you think of it as sort of more like smarter matches? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, I think it has to go beyond just like the physical layer. I think if you just show people a bunch of people who look the same, at a certain point it starts to to make those individuals less attractive because you you kind of want to be with someone who you believe is is truly unique. But if it was if it was, if it was based on more qualitative things like maybe your shared like interest in music or food, um, perhaps that that would work. I think. Most dating apps algorithms try and become smarter to the point where they give better recommendations. So that's currently in practice. It's just not as consumer facing as, as you might have just mentioned. Yeah, it is. Interesting. I mean, in order to do that well, you would, you you might need additional data. You know, I wonder if there. Well, let, let me let me back back up for a second. The you know, you you mentioned you know needs to go beyond looks, but I'm, I'm you know, Match and OkCupid and, and Tinder in the last you know couple decades have brought data to dating in a way that we've never had before, right? We've, we've never had feedback on on what people like, what they what they look for. And I think the conclusive evidence is really it's all looks. I'm, I'm half joking, but like what has that data brought to our understanding of dating besides what I just said? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I think, I think online dating is a highly visual format. And so um, like I've heard people uh, propose dating apps where you don't see photos and it's based on things like your voice. And, you know, like, like the way we've always thought about building product is, is just trying to mirror things that happen in real life and make them a little bit more accessible or reduce kind of the anxiety or, um, the stress that comes with that experience. So when you meet someone at a bar, you, you do see them. And the first thing you probably register as, as a human is, is their looks. Um, but then you go up to them, you have to have a conversation that has to be a vibe between, between you to actually take it to, to some next level. And so, um, I think as, as kind of like a first, a first signal, like, like where the kind of like binary choice happens, maybe, maybe the, the photo is the primary kind of thing that matters. But beyond that, you still need to have someone who's interesting or funny or whatever adjective you are attracted to. You're going back to the, the data thing. Remember Lulu, if, if that's what it was called, sort of, you know, reviewing, you know, yeah. I think it was women review men. And that's interesting because that's data that can then go to better matches. You know, it also has a dystopian element as well. But I wonder if it could be, you know, done in a way that sort of changes, like Tinder has changed culture in a bunch of different ways. But if, if that took off where people were basically reviewing each other and predominantly positive ways, the way people review each other on LinkedIn, that would incur, basically right now people hate their exes, <laughs> but you know, people would be on good yeah. terms with their exes. I don't, 
do you think that will happen or what do you think about that world? I think, I think that's very interesting, kind of the recommendations of people. I don't know who that would come from. Maybe it comes from your best friend. Perhaps it does come from someone you previously dated. I tend to think if it's someone you previously dated, like it's probably A, awkward to ask them and B, heavily skewed in some, some extreme direction. Yeah, she, she's like, he's all right. <laughs> he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think, and like you've seen recommendations applied on almost every other call it like marketplace where people <laughs> exist. And so it would be a really interesting experiment and maybe even a, a interesting growth feature. Yeah. And it is a nice segue to, to ISAs, um, and thinking about evaluating people in, in, in career aspects. But, but before that, you know, I want to mention that match, uh, you know, the sort of holding company is a unique model where they have sort of a, a family of, of dating companies and allows them to, you know, make a bunch of different experiments, uh, et cetera, learn from each other. Do you think that would work in other uh, industries? Is there something uniquely about da- uh, dating that allows there to be sort of a mega conglomerate to, to own basically all, all the winners? And or would you recommend any other, other industries uh, explore a similar path? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's something I've thought a lot about recently. Someone I know is um, Andrew Wilkinson at Tiny has kind of been doing that for um, – he's been taking kind of a P approach to small, profitable software companies. And I do think you can add some shared services layer on top of, of uh, a portfolio of companies. It's very helpful if those companies have some shared theme. So for, for Andrew, as an example, at Tiny, they look for job boards and kind of like there's, there's a single category they look for. I do, I, like, I think that's a fascinating model and, and I'm surprised more people don't do that. I think maybe you'll see an opportunity. So there's obviously a lot of, a lot of software companies being funded right now. And, um, at some point that, that just won't, won't sustain over, t- over time. And so you'll see a lot of companies that are maybe profitable, but can't quite get to the next stage. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in like why there aren't more private equity type of models where, um, you can buy a software company for sub $1 million and, um, you know, within some short time period, make it, make it profitable. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about that actually. Do you think there is a criteria behind industries where it would be a good fit versus where it wouldn't be a good fit? Um, it's a, a good question. So like, I think, I think one piece to consider is, is how expensive, like how much working capital do you need to maintain that company? And so in the case of, of Chinese companies, as an example, like it's, they're not, they don't need like a bunch of, of data scientists or uh, engineers, like they're pretty self-sustaining businesses. I haven't thought too much about, about what, like, like any vertical, I do know, like, I love the theory that, like, there needs to be a very clear path to profitability within some time period. I think for Andrew, it's, it's a month. And so, yeah, I think, I think when I think about it, it's more like, is there, is there some revenue model in place that you could really amplify? And, you know, what's kind of like, what's the cost to acquire these assets is, is a big question. Um, I talked to a company, I won't name who they are, but, uh, they're driving over a million page views per month. Um, they're a category leader within a vertical and they've self-funded, uh, the company, the founders have both spent a combined $6 million of, of their own capital in the company and they're kind of just running out of juice. But like the question is, is what do you, like once you buy that property, what do you do with it? And you have to have some very clear idea of how, um, your skill set will, will make the company better. And so, um, for me, like something like, like I know how, I think I know how to monetize internet properties pretty well. And so applying that lens, like maybe, maybe it becomes a decent opportunity. 
Absolutely. Let's uh, let's talk about ISAs. Why are you excited about ISAs? And, and more precisely, again, you know, in our podcast a decade from now, what you know, multi-billion-dollar companies will emerge besides Lambda uh, in in the ISA space? Yeah, um, I'm excited about ISAs for just the alignment it creates in, in the world and um, the student debt crisis that we face is, I think, one of the worst bubbles in in the world right now. And I've seen it affect family members, friends, um, my wife. And so I, I think I think ISAs are so exciting because it 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 removes barriers and it, it makes kind of education just more accessible to so many more people. And um, I've, I've gone to graduate school twice. I've gone to undergrad. Um, I've been fortunate I haven't been burdened with loans, but I can't imagine a world where I would have taken out loans and been, been able to do that. And so I just think it's, it's for education with the crisis where it makes a ton of sense and lending schools help bring it mainstream. And, um, I spend a lot of my time trying to just discover new vocational schools and, and trying to discover like what the next Lambda for X might be. And there's a lot of them out there. They're just kind of in unexpected places. What do you think is criteria of uh, independent new, you know, Lambda for X versus just Lambda taking over, taking over that category? Yeah, it's, it's really early. And I know Lambda is very focused on everything technical. Uh, some of the more interesting ones, I talked to a woman in Detroit um, in her mid-60s, and she's training house moms in Detroit to become Cisco admins. And so um, she's developed her own curriculum and is now kind of validating the educational experience. But that was really interesting. It's just a very unexpected use case. Um, I've seen Lambda, Lambda for diesel repairs. So, um, you know, like thinking of repair shops and Lambda for that category is really interesting. And then I've seen kind of all the variations of Lambda um, in the technical world. So, you know, the flock J's of, of the world. And I don't know what will happen. I do know Lambda has... I think the best team in the world attacking the problem and they're very well capitalized and, and they have, like they've created the kind of the cult of, of, of the space where um, when I invest in companies, I got to look for almost like that fanaticism. You don't see it very often and Lambda has that momentum. So I think for another company to compete, like they need to figure out a, a really um, interesting entry point that, that just captures people's attention like Lambda. I was talking to an investor and he mentioned that he doesn't think that a, you know, pick your analogy, a clear bank for people, an angel list for people, a starter for people uh, on its own will be a big business unless they also have the uh, training and job placement a la Lambda. Do, do you agree? Yeah. If not, why? I remember Upstart when it, when it was launched and I actually invested in a Penn student who was an engineer going out of the world. It's a great question. I think, I think, I'm less interested in that world because um, it just seems like, it, to me, like it doesn't seem as interesting. It doesn't seem like quite as impactful as Lambda, who's, you know, taking these students, giving them career counseling, um, giving them the education they need to to move up in the world. And I'm I'm, I'm just I, I happen to be less interested in that world. I think I think maybe like it's a better question probably for institutional investors who you know are like really interested in taking on new forms of of risk. Yeah, I, I personally, I don't really love that version of, of Lambda. We were talking the other day about P2P search engines, people search engines, and, and P2P credentialing. What are your thoughts there on, on opportunities or challenges to build uh, big business in, in either of those spaces? 
It's really interesting. I, I thought, like one of my coworkers asked me to write a recommendation on LinkedIn a couple of days ago and I did it. Um, it still felt a little bit awkward. We haven't quite reached, reached that point in the world where like, it's almost like, like what would like the IMDB for tech look like? I think a lot about that where attribution for projects is very clear and, and kind of attribution for what you actually worked on because I think there's just so many exaggerations of what people actually have done. And maybe, maybe like the P2P validation becomes the, the missing piece. But I do think in a world where people change jobs every 12 months or whatever it is now, there needs to be a better reputation there for um, the actual work that people did. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in what that might look like. And surprisingly, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people building in that category. Yeah, I remember Hunter Walk had had a post uh, where he wanted Product Hunt to be that, and, and Product Hunt was a you know a, a good company, but it never quite went that direction. And I I wonder what it would take to build an IMDb. Like, what, what is the incentive for, or what would be the wedge that that could that could start that? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think it comes from the employer. It has to come from the teams that work on the projects, and I'm not quite sure what gets you there. Um, you know, like in, in IMDb's world, I, I worked at UTA, which is a talent agency for, for a bit. Um, a lot of it's maintained by the agents and the clients who are constantly kind of making sure that um, those things are, are kept up to date. But like, I don't know what would cause this to suddenly happen. It's, it doesn't seem to me, to me to be a product that like people are begging for right now. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. Maybe, maybe it's something... Like, like if Stripe did this for their employees and they're kind of like the cultural icon in the tech world right now, maybe other companies would adopt it and then it would lead to some platform where people do this. But it is just like information that, that just isn't exposed right now. Yeah. Maybe when, when technologists have talent agents too. Yeah. I've thought a lot about that. I'm so shocked that doesn't exist when you look at the salaries of of tech workers and compare them to the entertainment industry, you know, it's not that far off. Of course, you don't have like the Leonardo DiCaprio type of salaries that happen every day, but, um, you know, like most of the, most of the contracts that I saw at UTA were much less money than hiring one engineer at, at a modern company. So I'm, I'm shocked. Also, I, I, I think a lot about this, like how much, how much stress does it create for the employee when they're negotiating their own salaries and, how many times does, does an employee actually negotiate the salary that they deserve? Um, there was a, a Twitter post that went kind of viral yesterday, and it was a, a woman who worked at WeWork. I think she was their 17th employee, and WeWork did not give her equity. Um, and she made the point, she was 23 years old, and she had no idea what equity was and you know, certainly didn't know to ask for it. And, you know, like the tech world just needs... Hey, like, like that's just not right on the employer's part, but employees need better ways to negotiate and to find their true market value because I think that's not the case right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, r- relatedly, you, you've been thinking a lot about uh, operator angels and, and also probably we've been thinking about this idea that, you know, angels became a status symbol in the last decade and maybe, you know, it will expand to not just people who invest, but people who just discover talent more broadly or, or because of ISAs or because, or, or there will be a way to sort of measure early social capital in like the first person who believed in somebody or co-signed somebody. How, how do you sort of make sense of how, 
the angels ecosystem is is evolving in those ways yeah i think it's really exciting and i'm a a scout myself but i I think that the stuff that really caught my attention was there's 25 funds with scout models and they said they average out to be like 500 scouts or running around silicon valley with with checkbooks um I think it's it's interesting from a lot of perspectives. One, from the company perspective, being um, like if I employ X scout, how much time do I want them spending on investing, um, and how do they manage their life so it's not a distraction? And then the second point is um, on the venture side, is you know like like how transparent are they being with with the entrepreneurs in terms of who's actually writing them the check. And this is something I think a lot about too. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. I'm happy because I think it, it kind of opens up a new world of investors and it gives a lot more diversity to people who are writing checks, but I don't know quite where it all goes. And I think every firm's trying to try to figure it out right now. Yeah. How do you think this evolves in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting. I think a lot about, um, like we don't have enough data on the performance of scouts yet to say whether or not this is truly a great model. Like one metric that, that you, you'd maybe want to look at is if you were fun is how many follow on checks do we write? And, you know, who are those people who are actually bringing us the deals that, that surface up to a series A? But I don't think this is going anywhere. Um, it seems to be just growing every, every year. And, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of funds that don't have scalp programs and they feel like they're falling behind. And so it's just something everybody's curious about right now. And, uh, you know, I, I think it just keeps, keeps growing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, what keeps sort of VCs, uh, in the power position or like even around frankly is, you know, cause capital becomes commoditized, uh, is the idea that they are good pickers, uh, that they can pick startups well, and that they, more importantly, I guess, for founders, that they can advise startups well. And then, I guess, subconsciously, uh, or not as explicit, is that they have their signals themselves. They have great brands, and thus, if I become a Sequoia company, you know, there's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, people will join my company, customers will want to work with me, etc. How do you think, do you think that the uh, the role of the, of the venture capitalist becomes less important or even more unbundled in the, in the next five to ten years, potentially even gone or, or, or splintered into a bunch of different pieces? Um, that's a tough one. Like I still believe the sequoias and benchmarks of the world will exist. I, I think, and a lot of people talk about this, the firms that are, are really interested in me are just the more specialized firms. And so the, the ones that uh, say we're like, we invest in X and that's what we believe in and less of kind of the horizontal venture models. But uh, you know, like in terms of picking, I think, I think there's something about being an operator where I was thinking about before, before the call, it's kind of like when you're, when you're a painter and you see, you walk into a museum and you see a great piece of art, there's a, there's a slightly different view than someone else who's never picked up a paintbrush or hasn't done it for a long time. And so, um, like I, I as an operator trying to apply my product intuition and everything I've learned throughout my career to picking things, I think that gives me a slightly different perspective great companies so i invested in in superhuman and i remember i was going around and talking to firms about the deal and um, a lot of people just didn't didn't get it and for me it just clicked really quickly so i don't know like i I think there's some advantages to these operators who have really specialized skill sets to give them capital to invest in in companies i think that's a great thing 
Is there anything from your thesis on Lambda that's worth sharing? So yeah, I, I, I was doing the UCLA Executive MBA program on the weekends. Um, my client I worked with for the past six months was Lambda School. And we worked together for about six months. The uh, primary purpose of the thesis was to improve their outcomes, placement percentages. And there wasn't one thing that, that really stood out. Just the, the broader thing was just the complexity of what they're doing is, is really, really great. And so, you know, like, like everything from the admissions layer to the actual education, which is obviously hugely important to the outcomes piece. Um, like they're going to build many different companies within Lambda that are very hard challenges. And I think they'll do it, but, um, like you think about just their outcomes team and their outcomes platform, I've got a lot of link in one day, which is, is pretty exciting. Um, so there wasn't, there wasn't one lesson. It was just more, um, just seeing how powerful their team is, is becoming and kind of the machine that they're building is, is truly impressive. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to zoom out uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, earlier we, we talked about your expertise being in, in product, but then also we talked about monetization. I'm, I'm curious what you think you sort of uniquely understand or uniquely appreciate about product. Uh, and then, and then we'll do monetization, uh, that maybe others don't, or maybe another way of putting it is what separates the, the great people from, from just the really good people? Yeah. I think like the greatest product people I know, um, are like, they're two different. They're very balanced people where um, the intuition is is a plus and their ability to parse data and understand um, that piece of the world is, is also a plus. The, the people I love, love work with, they really approach product as part. And so, um, you know, I worked with Brian Norgard for a long time. I've worked with Rahul at Superhuman now for long enough where um, they're very, very meticulous about everything they ship, um, but they don't sacrifice quality for speed. So they're still able to ship, um, at a, a rapid cadence. And yeah, I, th- I think, I think you just like the more you hang out around group product people, you realize how deep down in their kind of in their souls, they're just highly creative people who also have, have a very good quantitative view of the world. And so that's, that's the biggest piece is just, you know, like, like seeing perfection is, is something that, that really sticks with you. And that, um, in terms of monetization, like the biggest thing I've, I've thought about is just like you need to have a product in the right category to monetize well. And so a lot of people come to me and I mentioned this on Twitter for advice. And it's, it's just like, if you don't have, if you don't fit within those big categories of human needs, it's really hard to monetize. And so I talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization, esteem, love, safety, um, air, water, food, shelter. Like all these big categories are things people will pay for, but um, it's really hard to convince people to pay for things that, that they don't actually need. Yeah. One of the things you also talked about is slow onboarding, uh, particularly inspired by Superhuman. And you also said, have you seen a bunch of Superhuman for, for X-like products? Uh, talk about sort of the industries or types of products where the Superhuman approach will make a lot of sense versus maybe the ones that are a bit different. Yeah. I, and And... I don't know how many of your listeners have done superhumans onboarding, but uh, Rahul gave me a 30 minute uh, tutorial, which obviously does not scale, but that type of thing just, just really makes the experience stand out. You know, I think a lot of like, why do humans love lines and wait lists? And it almost felt like when, when Rahul was onboarding me, like he was, you only go to like a really great hotel and 
they walk you from the front lobby to your room and they show you every single bell and whistle in, in the hotel room. It kind of felt like it, it felt like I was like joining the four seasons of, of software. But I think I think I think the future of onboarding is very dependent for products like clearly superhuman wants to be luxury software perceived as, as a very um, luxurious experience in the current form. I actually heard that YC was in this cohort teaching lessons about slow onboarding. That kind of made me laugh just because we've been taught to try and scale everything. And so every part of software has been scaled. And now like humans want something that's a little bit more one-to-one. Um, they want to feel like the, they know the creator of the product that's, that they're using. Um, and they definitely want to feel like people are listening to their needs. I got um, actually an email from this guy, Scott Norton. He started Sir Kensington's and he, he felt a bug with, with Superhuman last week. And Superhuman responded with a long personalized apology letter. And they actually printed a T-shirt at the office with his bug on it. Um, they, they made like a, a cartoon that featured his bug. And they said um, they fixed his bug and it became literally a company T-shirt. And so because it was a very hard bug to, to solve, apparently. But it was like that level of uh, customer service. Um, it's just not done in the, in the world right now. And. I think that's that's a way to stand out. It's just and it's, these are very simple things. Like last two weeks ago, I, I picked up the phone. I called I think twelve customers in a week at at Tinder, and people can believe that somebody from Tinder was calling them on on the phone asking for product feedback, just because software companies have lost so much of that human touch. And that, those high fidelity conversations were some of my biggest learning learnings of the past couple of years. Just talking to customers on the phone. So yeah, more than slow onboarding, I think it's just humans want some interaction with companies and um, maybe it's because the Facebooks of the world have made everybody feel like a data point. The more you can you can kind of scale that one-to-one feeling, you might you might stand out in, in a really meaningful way. You, you mentioned that your uh, one of your investment frameworks is is find a market that thrives on its lack of transparency and, and make it transparent. Can you unpack what you mean here? And you've also talked about the importance of requests for startups. Uh, maybe go deep on a couple of the requests for startups you have that we haven't we haven't yet discussed. Yeah, sure. Um, so the transparency piece is I was just thinking about mostly marketplaces. The marketplaces that win um, make something that was not transparent easily accessible. And so like last was rig up, um, which everybody's in love with. But I think a lot about different industries where things just aren't quite as transparent as you need them to be. And so like one of them that I've been digging into, it's kind of random is, is plastic surgery. And so um, it's a huge expanding market, but there aren't that many players in the space. And so like there, there, there's always like stinky big markets that exist, which um, they just haven't been modernized quite yet. And so, yeah, that, that was kind of the purpose of, of that tweet in terms of requests for startups. I'm, I'm very interested in reputation and I know you're interested in reputation too, because you, uh, you started a company, I believe, or you applied to YC with a reputation company for, um, Lyft and Uber drivers. So what did, what did you learn about reputation for people who are trying to build, you know, identity and reputation products? Yeah. So I thought I, I put a Y Combinator with this idea, which is basically linked into for 1099s, um, but very specifically for Uber and Lyft drivers. Um, and so you would see things like their very kind of like fine print details of, of what, what their cars are, um, what music they like listening to, which services they've deli- delivered for, 
um, and what their reputations have been on each platform. And so the like the reason I, I wanted to build that was all these service providers have no portability of reputation. And so if you you know if you drive for Lyft and you suddenly decide that you want to drive for somebody else, you can't take that reputation anywhere else. It just seems like in a world where everybody else has portable reputation, 1099 should have should have that too. And so, yeah, that was that was the the idea. And I won't say who was building it with me, but YC did not accept the company, and nobody's built that that quite yet, which I think is is pretty interesting. I think like one one part of that question is whether whether the companies would want that. So, would Uber want all their drivers on a single platform where you know they're names and profiles are exposed. And I think part of the reason why reputation isn't portable for those drivers is, is because the companies are incentivized to make them non-portable um, because it creates some lock-in on your platform. But in a world where, where it was like pro 1099s, you would have reputation layers that live with them forever. And that, uh, people have been talking about sort of the, the blockchain crypto space have also been excited about identity reputation and, and you've done some there. Is there anything you're currently excited about in that space or, or what's been your, your thesis or approach? Like I, I love looking at products that make it really easy for new consumers to learn about crypto. And so the one that stands out my right now is Molly, Molly.com. Um, and it's just, uh, like it's like honey, but for Bitcoin. So you purchase, uh, I shred on Everlane or I bought, Farmer's dog for my my dog last week, and I earned ninety dollars back in Bitcoin with a single purchase, which was pretty crazy. Yeah, I love I love Lolly because it's making it really easy for consumers to create Bitcoin wallets, and it's just like this really simple onboarding layer that's based in a like present day reality. It's not too far fetched. Invest in Compound Finance. I love that team. Invest in Blockfolio, like another app that has real traction. And so, yeah, I, I think I got like we all got caught up in in you know the crypto mania, and, and the projects that I really still love are those that are based in like present day reality. So I'm not like while like decentralized organizations are interesting, I just think it's not anything that's near term. So for me, as as someone who builds products, it's just not quite as compelling to me. Yeah, we're doing this podcast. I'm in San Francisco. You're definitively in Los Angeles and you live there quite some time. We've talked a little bit about this, but do you see the Silicon Valley exodus as, as actually happening or what do you see going on there? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so I grew up in, in the Bay on the peninsula and somehow I ended up in Los Angeles. And so I hear all the time, my friends, um, talking about moving and some have moved. And so you know, like two of the quotes that really stand out for me was one, someone questioned whether going to Silicon Valley was still necessary. And they, they, they ultimately thought it was, but their conclusion was that you go to Silicon Valley for four years and it's something that looks like college where you grow your network, you can build your reputation, and then you're free to leave. Um, that's an interesting thought experiment. The other one is, is the model. I guess another company called Turing.com and the thesis is like, yes, you still probably need an executive team in the area. Um, for a lot of reasons, you're closer to capital. Um, you can recruit more seasoned executives, but beyond the executive team, does it make sense for a startup to hire anybody in the area? Um, or the bulk of your team? If you're, if you're raising a seed round and you raise a couple million dollars, it's very hard to, to make that money last when you hire your software team in, in the area. So you got to start up in LA. Um, they have their executive team in LA and all their developers 
it's one group and it's 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 their full-time employees but they're based in portugal and they've kept burn rate down a lot so if i'm if i'm an investor that's a very attractive thing to me whereas i think in the past if you were an investor you it would make you a little bit uneasy so i think we're, we're maybe in a world where investors support this kind of new model which is executives in some you know really kind of dynamic tech hub and then you have distributed teams elsewhere and that's that's the model that i've i thought of i think full distributed where you have like your ceo in oregon and your vp of engineering in texas i, I don't know if that would work quite as well i still think you need some um some hq to to really build at the, at the early stages my guest has been Jeff Morris, and this has been a fantastic episode. Jeff, thank you for coming on. And for people who want to learn more about you in Chapter 1, wh- where can you point them? So JMJ is my Twitter handle, and Chapter1.vc is the website. Um, and, of course, you can always download Tinder on Tinder.com. Jeff, this has been a great episode. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.